Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Straight Talk with Salim. I believe the word of God is truly the lamp unto our feet and a guiding light for our path. And a majority of the church neglects this guiding light because it's too difficult to comprehend. Well, God has given me a hunger to study the Bible and a passion to share it with you. My friends, if we don't understand the word, how can we apply it to our lives and actually live in obedience to Jesus? So join me now as we walk through God's word and learn the essentials of living a Christ-centered life. Welcome back to Straight Talk with Salim, week 21 of this Revelation series. It was last week we walked through Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, and we, we really went deep. And we compared a lot of texts to try and understand the passage of Scripture. And I think we, we found some good things that hopefully helped us to decipher um, what's really going on in this chapter. And we answered the questions from the text, who and what and where and when are those people uh, that we read about in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. You know, those souls of those that had, had been beheaded for their testimony. Uh, the ones who had not worshipped the beast or his statue. The ones that, that did not accept his mark on their foreheads or their hands. The ones that came to life again. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Well, you know, we really walk through who those people are. And yes, I know some of y'all probably walked away confused <laughs> and I promise I'll try not to do that again, but it is important that we, that we go deep and that we really dig into the scripture. Because I think that in order to really understand what the Lord is trying to show us here, you know, we've got to, we've got to compare and contrast. We've got to verify. We've got to dig. We've got to search. And so either way, we know it's important. And it's important for us to understand as we close out this chapter today. And so now we move into the next and final part of Revelation 20. And as we move into the next part of this text, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, what is being communicated here is the culmination, the final resolution of how God deals with sin and its source. And God is about to communicate how he deals with sin and how he deals with sinners. And we're going to examine the fate of the nations and the fate of Satan himself. And remember, we've covered this a few different times already in Revelation. And I will show you shortly that this just is another perspective of the end of this final battle. And with all of that being said, why don't we just jump right in? It's Revelation 20. And we'll start with verses 7 through 9. And we're going to unpack this. When the thousand years come to an end, Satan will be let out of prison. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle, a mighty army as numberless as the sand along the seashore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. So here, very simply, you have the thousand year reign of Christ that comes to an end. I mean, this is the age in which Christ has ruled and reigned in the hearts of his church advancing the gospel while Satan has been um, prevented from deceiving the nations. Then he's let out and it says Gog and Magog, which symbolize all the forces of evil that band together to battle God. This is not a typical battle where the outcome is in doubt during the conflict. I mean, guys, there's, there's no, there's no contest here. You got two mighty forces of evil. Those are the beast and of Satan 
uniting to do battle against God. And the Bible here describes each battle in two verses. The evil beast and his forces are captured and thrown into the fiery lake. And then fire from heaven consumes Satan and his attacking armies. I mean, it's, it's that easy. There will be no doubt. There will be no worry, no second thoughts for believers about whether they've chosen the right side in this moment. And the question I had when I read this was, wait a minute. I mean, this, this is the only description we have? And most of us ask, well, why, why is this it? I mean, this is the last battle. Why would it be so simply explained? Why, why are you giving us the cliff notes? I mean, this is the war to end all wars. Shouldn't there be more details for us? And all we get is, man, fire came down and consumed them? Actually, this is not it. There is more details throughout this letter. And as I mentioned, we have, we've seen this same war a number of times before. You remember the illustration that we use time and time again? You remember the, the sports replay? We see the play happen. Then we see it in slow motion from multiple angles. And we see it in slow motion and close up and then slow motion from entire, entirely different angles. And when we slow it down, we begin to see the details and it shows us what's really going on. And this is what's happening again here in Revelation. And when you piece all these angles together, you're not seeing a different play. You're seeing different aspects and details of the same play. So you, you get a fuller understanding of what is actually going on. And I feel like I say this every week. This is Revelation. And we have seen this play from multiple different angles. We've seen it at high speed. We've, we've seen it at slow speed. We've seen it at speeds in between. And therefore, when we come to this last explanation here in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, all we see is the summary. And it's simply saying, the nations gather, God consumes them with fire, and that's it. It's over. It's a wrap. Game over. Roll the credits. I mean, simply. But we can't just move to Revelation 21 and 22. I mean, we must unpack this text because there's much for us to see and understand here. And I want to look at some key points before we move out of this chapter. First, the identity of this Gog and Magog. Who, I mean, who are these people? Because you have to remember that there are believers who look at this text very different than, than I do. You have those who will argue that when you see Gog and Magog here, you're not talking about the same Gog and Magog from Ezekiel 38 and 39. Because that was a different time and this has to be different and this can't be the same. And if it's the same, then that proves recapitulation, which you already know that I argue this is what it is. And if my interpretation is right, it, it proves that Revelation 20 doesn't come after Revelation 19 chronologically, but that it's, it's telling the same story as Revelation 19. And the use of, of Gog and Magog basically settles the deal for me. I mean, most commentaries supporting other views have to make a point that Gog and Magog mentioned here in Revelation is different than the Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 through 39. So the question we have to ask and answer is, is, is this, what, is this Gog and Magog Jr.? Or, or is this the same Gog and Magog that Ezekiel prophesied about? And I, based on my interpretation, I'm standing firm with the belief that this Gog and Magog is the one prophesied in, 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 in Ezekiel. Simply, Gog and Magog represent an international army who stands against God and his people from the four corners of the earth. And I would encourage you 
you know, to pause this right now and just go take a moment and go read Ezekiel 38 through 39. It might take you 10 minutes, maybe even less. And you ain't got to study it and pick it apart. Just go read it and then come back and tell me what you think. Second, they are deceived by the devil. This is a repeat of what we saw, not, not only in Revelation 19, but in Revelation 16, verses 12 through 16 as well. Look at the text from Revelation 16. It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the God of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So there it is. This, this great battle often referred to as the battle of Armageddon. And we dealt with that in Revelation 16. And I would refer you back to week 16 of the podcast where we went over that whole idea of the battle of Armageddon in great detail. But here we have this idea of the whole world being gathered, the whole world being deceived by demonic spirits to come against God. And we've seen this before, not just here in Revelation 20, but also um, in Revelation 19, as well as Revelation 16. And this is also evidence of, of the meaning of Satan's binding. I mean, if you remember, one of the most difficult aspects of the amillennial position is answering the question, how can anyone say that Satan is currently bound right now? Look at all the sin and evil in the world. But guys, we answered that in episode 19 when we walked through Revelation 20 verses 1 through 3. Remember, the binding of Satan is very specific. The text does not say Satan is unable to do anything. I always say Satan is, is the mob boss, man. He's the mob boss in prison. And he, he's got his forces out here wreaking havoc. He's still controlling evil. He's still making phone calls. And he's the orchestrator. He's the puppet master. But look at what the text specifically says. The text says he is bound so he doesn't deceive the nations. And I know what you may be thinking. You say he's bound so he doesn't deceive the nations. Why are there so many evil and wicked nations out there that seem overpowered by satanic influence? Guys, that's not the point that we're trying to make today. We've already discussed that. Go, again, go back and listen to the other episode regarding, I think it was episode 19. And we already, we already went through that. So we ask ourselves, what, what is the point? Well, the question is answered here. What happens when he gets unbound? It doesn't say when Satan gets unbound after the thousand years, sin comes back into the world again. It doesn't say when Satan gets unbound after a thousand years, sickness comes back into the world again. What this text says is whatever happens after the thousand years is the only thing that he was bound from during the thousand years. So what happens? Well, when the thousand years ends, Satan will be released to come out and deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and he will gather them for battle. So what's he being bound from? Simply gathering his forces to war against the people of God. I mean, that is the most simple statement. I can. That is what he's being bound from. And how can you argue that point? Because guys, based on this text, it's clear as day. He's not bound from any evil being in the world. Again, because there is the world, there is the flesh, there, there is the devil. 
And we already talked about the fact that you and I don't need the devil to make us sinful. Our own flesh does a good enough job of that. So what is he bound from? Simply, he is bound from deceiving the nations to gather them for battle against God and his people. That's all he's bound from. And anyone else who argues against this is reading into the text something that's just not there. Guys, this is recapitulation and we must see this. And we've seen the same story before in other places. This is just a different angle of the same story. And there's a parallel in Revelation 13, in Revelation 17, Revelation 19. But this is the war that we saw in Revelation 19 being referred to again from a different perspective. From, from another angle, and it's, it's extremely abbreviated. Again, it's the Cliff Notes version. But let's turn to Revelation 17, 12, and let's read that text. It says, And the ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. Here it says one brief moment. Other translations say one hour. But you notice in Revelation 20, in the text that we're reading, Satan will be released for a little while. It's the same concept. And the text goes on to say in Revelation 17, 13 through 14, they will agree to give him their power and authority. Together they will go to war against the lamb, but the lamb will defeat them because he is the Lord of all lords and king of all kings. So Ezekiel 38 through 39, Zechariah 12 through 14, and Zephaniah 3, we see this in the Old Testament in this reference to Gog and Magog. This is that last battle. And John right now in this text in Revelation 20 is helping us to interpret Ezekiel. This is very important. But we don't have to look at Ezekiel and say, wait a minute. John has some issues here that are different than Ezekiel. For example, what Ezekiel is talking about doesn't seem to be as universal as what John is talking about. And that's where the concept of, of um, progressive revelation comes in. John has more revealed to him than Ezekiel does. That is why we have a New Testament and we have an Old Testament. So when Ezekiel thinks about the people of God, this, this prophet of the exile, what, what is he thinking about? Well, he's thinking in a very limited scope. He, he's thinking the people of Israel, the Hebrew people. Again, it's limited. But when John thinks about the people of God and this great battle that he's seeing, he has a scope that is very different than Ezekiel's scope. He's thinking of the global church, the church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles, not just the people of Israel. So essentially, John is helping us to understand what Ezekiel saw. We don't look at this and say that John saw something different than Ezekiel. No, John's understanding of what Ezekiel saw, he's understanding what Ezekiel saw better than Ezekiel did. Does that make sense? I mean, this again, this is progressive revelation. Simply put, Ezekiel distinguishes Gog and Magog from the other nations of the earth who ally with them. But now, Gog and Magog are figuratively equated with all nations of the earth. And moreover, Gog and Magog are these allies, um, and these allies, they, they come out of the remote parts of the north in Ezekiel. You notice if you go back and read, you know, Gog and Magog and these allies, they come out of the remote parts of the north in Ezekiel. So here they come from throughout the whole earth. You notice in Revelation, 
They come, they come from the whole earth, the four corners of the earth. So what we see in Revelation is really, it's a global view of Ezekiel's prophecy. And it suggests that oppressed Israel uh, in Ezekiel is also seen globally. And in fact, oppressed Israel becomes equivalent in Revelation 29 to um, the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Which also can be understood as, as the church throughout the earth. So John universalizes what Ezekiel sees. I know, again, this is deep. I mean, I'm just trying to think of how I can state this more simply. Essentially, what Ezekiel sees really is a foreshadow of the end. Okay, And John is seeing it on full display. Both in terms of God's enemies and in terms of God's people. But the reference to Gog and Magog is just, it's unmistakable. I mean, this is not some nations versus other nations. I mean, look at it again very clearly. The thousand years have ended. Satan is released from prison and he will deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, which simply means all the nations of the earth. And when this happens, everyone, all the nations come together against God and his people. Again, this is not Israel and her allies against the rest of the Middle East. Guys, we, we've got to stop with that mentality. Every time there's a war or threats of something happening, people, they start predicting the end of age. And then five years pass by and nothing happens. And then another prophet shows up on the scene and, and people keep believing this crap, man. I mean, look at what it says right here. It's bigger than the Middle East. This end time battle will be believers versus unbelievers, Period. Third, notice that Satan will gather them together as numberless as the sand along the seashore. This is important. I mean, sand on the seashores is, is an ancient biblical metaphor for the countless multitude. Remember the promise of, of God to Abraham? But here in Revelation, there is, there is an added significance. On the sand of the seashore that the dragon stood. And from the sea, the beast emerged to receive the dragon's power and wage the dragon's war against the saints. As the harlot's seat on the, on the waters symbolizes her economic influence over the world's peoples, the dragon standing on the sand shows his spiritual dominion over the nations which now follow his lead against the church to their own destruction. So this idea of the sand has, has been used before a number of times in Revelation. And, and, and it all comes together here in Revelation 20. Again, arguing further um, for recapitulation. Fourth, notice they surround the camp in the beloved city. I mean, this harkens back to Revelation 3.12. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be, my, they will be citizens in the new city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. I mean, this is a picture of the camp of the saints in the beloved city. This is not... Um, a literal geopolitical place. This is not a literal geopolitical battle. This is not the battle of armies of some nations versus the armies of other nations. Guys, this is the spiritual battle of Satan himself desiring to destroy the church. That beloved city, the, the camp of the saints, that's the church. And we've seen this time and time again. And at the end of the age, there is this outpouring of wrath by the adversary against the people. We know that's coming. And in, in, in a number of times in Revelation, we see it represented um, by this number three and a half, three and a half years. 
And the idea of three and a half is a broken seven. And seven is something that comes to completion. Three and a half means seven is broken. And if the seven is allowed to come to completion, this means the church is destroyed. But it doesn't come to completion, which means the church isn't destroyed. This means that the fullness of the wrath of the adversary is broken and God's people are not destroyed. But guys, make no mistake about it. There will be great wrath poured out at the end of age against the people of God all over this world, in every nation. But we must remember God is faithful. And we are reminded of that again and again and again in this book. And this is clearly the same battle that we've, um, we've seen many times before. Why? Well, because Christ is not a failed earthly king. That's why. Christ is a victorious earthly king. And what do I mean by that? Let me explain. And I don't mean to harp on this, but those who are hearing this, you must understand the importance of getting this picture right. There are people teaching the church everywhere about this literal thousand year reign of Christ on earth. And scripturally, it, it's just, it's hard to get on board with it. So let me just break this down once more. To believe in this, uh, this literal um, thousand year reign is to believe that Jesus returns again, that he's enthroned in Jerusalem. And for the thousand years is reigning here on the earth with, with a rod of iron, ruling the nations with a rod of iron. And only at the end of this thousand year reign on earth, according to many commentators, to see Satan released and then to have it revealed uh, that people were obeying Jesus outwardly, but hadn't really accepted him inwardly. Hence, you know, the great war that we see. Not to mention the fact that Revelation 20 verses uh, one through six takes place in heaven. I mean, these thrones we see and souls that we see are in heaven, not on earth. We, we, we made that very clear last week. And the other thing is the nations have not, have not been reconstituted. And we said this last time, last week. But we must mention this again. The idea of the nations is not part of God's plan. Because we're not going to have nations in heaven. Trust me, we will not be divided by our ethnicity in heaven and on the new earth. It's just not happening. And the only reasons we have nations now is because of the fall of man. <clears throat> because of sin. So why then would we have multiple nations on the four corners of the earth during the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth? Guys, that, that's impossible. And, and let us not forget that you're also going to have some people who are here like Christ with resurrected bodies. Therefore, they, they will not be, not be able to marry or be given in marriage. But other people who were unbelievers when all this happened, who were converted when it happens, then they're going to go repopulate the world. I mean, that story doesn't just, it just doesn't make sense. Not to mention the small issue of the temple being rebuilt and Christ reigning on the throne while blasphemous sacrifices are being offered on the temple. While Jesus, the last and final sacrifice that, that satisfied the wrath of God is sitting and ruling and reigning and allowing these blasphemies in the same city where he reigns. I mean, God help us if that is how we think it's going to be. And we need to understand that this picture that we see here, guys, it's a spiritual picture. It's not a literal picture. Fifth, if we have identified the identity of Gog and Magog, well, what is their destiny? I mean, it says at the end of the text that we're unpacking here, fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. 
Quite simply, they're, they're defeated by God, supernaturally. God doesn't send out an army more powerful than their army. They're defeated supernaturally by God. I mean, that is the picture of, of being consumed by fire. And we also see this picture in the prophets, again, in the Old Testament. And we've seen this in Ezekiel 38, 22 and, and Ezekiel 39, 6, which is exactly what we also see in Revelation 19, 11 through 21. You see at the end of Revelation 19, it speaks of vultures all gorging themselves on dead bodies. And then if you flip over to Revelation 39, 17, it speaks of God calling all birds to gorge themselves on the enemy. I mean, go read Ezekiel 39, 17 through 24, and you tell me that's not a foreshadowed prophecy of what's to come at the end of age when God strikes down the nations. Guys, it is the battle at the end of age. The same battle we now see again here in this text from Revelation 20, marking the end of this present age. I mean, this is what happens to those who war against God. But before we move on, <clears throat> let's make something very clear here. Oftentimes, when we think about Revelation and we think about it from the perspective that we're used to thinking about it from, you know, we have all these books and movies and prophets and all these people who know everything telling us what Revelation means. And so what happens is we're influenced to believe a certain way. You know, you know the locusts, they represent Apache uh, helico helicopters. You got the birds represent the planes that, that hit the Twin Towers. Yeah, I mean, that people think 9-11 was, you know, prophesied in, in Revelation, uh, in the book of Revelation. And then we see the wars and we see these nations and these people in uniforms that are gathered for the great battle in, in Middle East. And here's what that does. That allows us to to depersonalize it. In other words, the book of Revelation isn't personal to us. Why? Well, because I, I'm, I'm Salim. I'm, I'm in Florida. Like I'm not a soldier over in the Middle East gathering for war against Israel. This doesn't have anything to do with me. More than likely, I'm not even going to be around at this time. So these are like future armies. They're, they're future soldiers and future nations that are going to gather for war. And these people are going to be in trouble because they put on uniforms to take up arms against God. Not me. And so what we do is we remove ourselves from the equation. But when you understand the nature of Revelation 20, and you understand that this is not about bombs and bullets, this is not even about literal armies gathering on literal battlefields. This is a spiritual war that Satan wages against the people of God all over the earth. And this involves everyone who doesn't belong to Christ. Friends, everyone who hasn't bowed the knee to Christ has bowed the knee to the beast. Everyone who's not sealed by Christ has the mark of the beast. And it's not, guys, the RFID chip and the vaccine. Guys, stop being crazy, okay? It's idolatry. If you boil the whole thing down, you take all of the all of, all of the, the fluff off of it. It's idolatry, plain and simple. Guys, it's holding hands with sin in this world and its system. It's living a life that is anti-God. I mean, how easy would that be? All I have to do is not let them put that chip in or inject me with that vaccine or join some army and go to war against Israel. I'm good. Guys, all I have to do is vote for the candidates that are on the side of Israel and I'll be okay. You know, I don't support abortion. You know, I'm Republican, so I'm a Christian. Yeah, no. Guys, that's the wrong answer. 
Sorry, friends, you are wrong. You're all types of wrong. You're completely missing it. And Satan is happy you're missing it because when you think like this, guys, he has you right where he wants you. See, it's, it's time we, we wake up and we get in the battle. And if you have not bowed the knee to Christ, like, like really bowed the knee, like he is Lord, not just your savior. Okay, guys, I know, I know many of you out there that if I asked you right now, who is Jesus to you? Oh, he's my savior. Of course he's your savior. But is he your Lord? Is he the boss of your life? You're, you're a slave of Christ, man. Like you're no longer in charge, okay, of nothing. Your, your wife, your kids, your husband, your money, your job, your health, your body, it's none of it belongs to you, okay? Lord of all or not Lord at all. Jesus is not just some guy who came and died on a cross. So if you have not repented and come to Jesus in faith, I'm here to tell you that you're part of this end time army that will be consumed with fire. Sorry, I'm not sorry. And this is the spiritual reality. This is the war that's going on in our souls, okay? And I know many of you may be thinking, man, Salim, this is so sci-fi. You're so, this sounds so like next level weird. Yeah, I know Revelation seems kind of weird. Uh, but I'm warning you to examine your own heart and open these scriptures and stop playing around. This is not a game. Guys, ask yourself the question. When are you going to come to the moment when you realize you are a sinner and are in need of a savior? When are you going to realize that Christ came and died for sin once and for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us back to God? Because Jesus is the literal bridge to God and some of us stand on one side rejecting the bridge only to choose to stay disconnected. Will we realize that Jesus is our only hope? Will we realize that we must turn to Christ or else we will have bowed the knee to Satan and when we drop off into eternity, we will be consumed by wrath for eternity. And here's the scary thing. Guys, there is no neutrality in this war. You're either for Jesus or against him. And based on Revelation 20, there is no room for anyone to sit on the sidelines saying they are just undeclared. I'll, get, I'll figure it out later. No, don't buy that lie. This is the spiritual reality. And every one of us is engaged on one side or the other. No one's in the middle. Everyone is engaged on one side or the other of this particular battle that is mentioned right here in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. It's time you get serious, my friends. Stop playing around. Verse 10. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Forever is that. That's forever. So here we see the fate of Satan. And this comes after the thousand years. So here Satan is released and this is for a short while. It's a very short while where Satan rages against the church. He's not free to do what he pleases. He, he's never been free to do what he pleases. I, I believe it was Martin Luther who said, even the devil is God's devil. So essentially what that means, he, he's on a short leash with a timetable. And we've got to keep this in mind. Because oftentimes when difficulty comes to us, especially difficulty like on a tragic level, our first response is to think that God has somehow lost control. That's never been the case and it, nor, it never will be the case. And this is what's being communicated here. We must understand the nature of the deception of the nations. Again, because we're not talking about literal bombs and bullets here in this symbolic book. We're, we're not talking about zombies going off to war. We're not talking about people being possessed by the devil and marching off to war. That's not the picture. This deception is a spiritual deception. 
under which all people live. And before you knew Christ, you were, you were part of this deception. You turn to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Paul, Paul explains this spiritual deception. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following the deception. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's the deceiver of the nations, guys. And we were all part of the deceived nations before we came to Christ. Every one of us carrying out our own desires, which were his desires. And then there's this issue of the lake of fire. I mean, here's another difficulty. And what you'll find is people who will argue against the idea of eternal punishment based upon the very view that, that I take of Revelation, which, which says, I mean, this is my view. This is a book filled with symbols. It's a picture book. There are pictures here. And you've got to understand the Old Testament and the pictures that are used in the Old Testament. And you have to understand um, the New Testament in order to understand that these pictures um, and understand these pictures to, to, to make any sense of them. These things are symbolic. And so because of my view, some people will come and say, well, yeah, well, since this whole idea here is symbolic, could, could, could hell be symbolic? I mean, could there be no literal hell? And so we ask the question, I mean, what do we do with that thought process? I mean, do we just sort of symbolize hell and not believe in it either? Well, a couple of things that we must get here. First, this language is symbolic. Hell is not a literal lake. Fire in Revelation, and we've seen it time and time again, this is no more actual fire than what was coming out of Jesus' eyes in Revelation 19 was actual fire. Or what was coming out of his mouth was a, a literal sword. It was symbolic. But the question is, what is fire symbolic of? Guys, fire is symbolic of judgment. And here's another thing to keep in mind. Even if this is being used symbolically here, and please understand this, because oftentimes what people say is, you know, you, you, you take that view and you see these things as symbolic and it just messes up your whole view of scripture. And now all of a sudden you don't believe that God literally created the world in six days. Friends, why do we interpret revelation this way? That, that's the question. Well, because of the type of literature it is. Okay, you don't interpret the rest of scripture the same way because it's not the same type of literature. For, for example, Genesis, where, where it speaks of God creating the world in six days, Genesis is not apocalyptic literature. So you don't interpret Genesis the way that you interpret Revelation. And this is important for a few reasons. Number one, because it cuts the legs right out from under the main argument against this approach to Revelation. And that argument, that argument says, well, this is the way the liberals view the Bible. And what I say is it may be the way liberals view the Bible, but I don't view the Bible like this. I just view Revelation like this. And when Genesis says God created the world in six days, I believe God literally created the world in six days because there's no reason for me to take that symbolically. However, in Revelation, there is no reason for me to take most of this book literally. Number two, it will cut out confusion that even we can have when it comes to reading the rest of scripture. I mean, bottom line is this. Revelation 20, 
doesn't mention hell. It talks about Satan and a lake of fire, which symbolizes hell. So are you hearing what I'm saying here? This, this is symbolic language. And what is this language symbolic of? Hell. So there's no need to give up on literal hell just because you see this language as symbolic because this symbolic language doesn't say hell. It says lake of fire and sulfur. Again, what is that symbolic of? Hell. The lake of fire in this passage is not literal since Satan along with his angels are spiritual beings. This is very important to understand, guys. Our enemies are spiritual beings. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the spiritual powers and the principalities, right? And what is a literal lake of literal fire going to do to these spiritual beings? Guys, it doesn't fit, right? I mean, you throw a human in a lake of fire, of course. It's going to kill him. It's going to destroy him. But you throw a spiritual being into a literal lake of fire, that's not, it just doesn't fit. Guys, they're spiritual beings. So we're going to put Satan in a literal lake with literal fire? No, absolutely not. Guys, the fire is a punishment that is not physical, but spiritual in nature. It's judgment. The beast and the false prophet are not literal, but figurative for unbelieving institutions composed of people. And we've said this before. This is another argument people will throw up against this view. God didn't create hell for people. He created hell for Satan and his angels. People will use that to argue against the doctrine of election and say that God never intended for people to go to hell because hell just wasn't made for people. But what do the beast and the false prophet represent and symbolize? Guys, we've gone over this many weeks. Religious and political institutions, which are made up of what? It's, they're made up of people. So people will go to hell. Satan and his angels will go to hell. Hell is real. Hell is unending judgment and torment and, and separation from God forever. Guys, and I think the worst thing about hell will be forever living with the fact that you spent your entire life living for yourself, rejecting the only one who could save you from that, who could offer you abundant life and freedom and realizing that your chance is no more. And the moment you realize this and want Jesus, guess what? You won't be able to have him. And that thought is terrifyingly real and it will happen to many. And this is why we must continue to tell the world the truth. Guys, we must get out of the fog. And sadly, many are in fog. They live in a fog. And they're going to stay in the fog. They can't see clearly. They, they don't really know what's going on, but they feel fine and they, they feel normal. I mean, how can you feel fine and feel normal and be living in a fog? Well, it's usually because it's all you know. It is your normal. And if we're going to be able to imagine a world existence that exists in perfect harmony, uh, in perfect peace and comfort, no knowledge or experience of sin or guilt or shame or death or disease or division or loss or fear or anger, if we're going to be able to imagine that, something in us has to shift. I mean, think about this. We live in this world and this world's all we know. We're constantly being told the world is about to break. Or we're getting out of this pandemic and boom, there, here come more variants. We aren't safe anywhere. We are constantly on the brink of war. You name it and it is the world. Okay, it's nonstop and it's always bad news. And most of us are just held together by anger and anxiety. 
And if we're going to imagine what Jesus wants us to imagine, we have to do some work around that because the day is coming. In fact, we are closer to this reality of what Revelation 21 4 speaks of. No more sin, shame, suffering, death, sorrow, done. We're close to that. Guys, and I already mentioned this. Satan is, is currently attacking the world like a mafia boss in prison. Can't do jack but make some phone calls from prison. Which means for the body of Christ, the world is ours for plundering. He's currently bound and the church should be taking advantage. We should be plundering his goods. And how do we plunder? Compassion, mercy, grace, healing, power, evangelism, hospitality, repentance, confession. Guys, these are the weapons of our warfare. It is a violent war, but these are our weapons that God has given us to fight this battle in order to plunder Satan's house and help take back what belongs to Jesus. Do you have that mentality? Friends, wherever we see lostness and brokenness and hopelessness, do we, do we want to ultimately take it back? Or do we sit idle and watch as the world burns to the ground? We must understand that we must get in the fight. This is how we wage war against Satan. We join Jesus in the fight of establishing his kingdom on earth. Guys, Jesus is coming back to take all of this back. And while we are in this space, Jesus has given us the opportunity to plunder the strong man's house. He has given us the great commission and the greatest commandments. This is how we fight. When we worship and share and open up and ask for forgiveness and give and love and show hospitality, we're fighting in the war. And when we don't do these things, we're being recruited to the other side. We are actually helping the strong man. We are not on our heels. The strong man is on his. And when Jesus told Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail, this is a strong statement. And right now, guys, where the church is rising is where people are fighting and battling. Where the church is stagnant, half asleep, lazy, this is where the church is compromising. Here's the deal. The issue with us isn't what's going on in the world, all the problems and the issues. It's our lack of commitment to make this a lifestyle. This mentality must become our life and it needs to happen today. But before you can get in the war, there's a question that needs to be answered. And the only question that remains is where do you stand? Are you inside the camp? Or are you outside the camp? Have you come to Jesus in repentance and faith or have you not? I mean, do you worship him and him alone? Or have you given yourself over to idols? Is Christ your all in all? Has he redeemed you from your sin? Or are you waiting on another? I'm here to tell you there is no other. There's no other hope. There's no other savior. There's no other answer. It is Christ and it's Christ alone. And he will do away with sin. And the question is, when that happens, is what will come of you? My friends, this is all for this week's episode of Straight Talk with Celine. Come back next week as we move on. Episode 22 is coming. And we open up to Revelation 21 and we look at the new Jerusalem. Finally, we get some good news. And we read about the new heaven and the new earth. God will wipe away all the tears and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things will be gone forever. And God makes all things new. So until next time, guys, take care. 
My friends, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of Straight Talk with Salim. Remember that I love you with the love of Christ and I implore you to just passionately pursue Jesus with everything you have.